Well, if you'd please open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And if you're willing and able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And as I read, would you listen to what God's word, how God's word is set apart from everything else? 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our last passage in 1 Timothy 4 showed us that those who depart from the faith follow the word of Satan. And this morning, our text teaches us that those who would remain in the faith follow the word of the Savior. And this leads us to the main gospel truth from this passage. Only the Savior's word is worth following. Only the Savior's word is worth following. And as his weak disciples, we can't follow his word without his strength and help. So let's go to him in prayer together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word gives light and understanding. And Lord, we ask you to give us light, to give us understanding as we go through your word together this morning. Lord, would it be your word that guides us? And would we be transformed by your truth? We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we walk through 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10 together, we will see that the Savior's word guides us toward godliness in three ways. It sustains us, it shapes us, and it secures us. It sustains us, it shapes us, and it secures us. So let's begin in verse 6 with this first point. The Savior's word sustains us. The Savior's word sustains us. Now, at the top of Paul's list for young Timothy is that he would be a good servant of Christ Jesus. We see that right in verse 6. Well, what would make him a good servant? Well, it's right there. If he puts these things before the brothers, that is the whole church in Ephesus. Now, in its immediate context, these things refers to the passage just before the warnings of departing from the truth of the Christian faith. But it can also more broadly refer to everything else that Paul has said up until this point in the letter. If we just briefly go back through the highlight reel of 1 Timothy 1-3, through Paul has taught Timothy about the glory of God's salvation in Christ. 
about the horrors of the devil's deception, about the life and practice of a healthy congregation, and the church's calling to live into her identity as a pillar and buttress of the truth. These are the kinds of things that must be continually put before the church in service to Christ. John Stott once described this service as something like a waiter serving guests at a table. All of these truths have been laid out for us to enjoy and for us to feed on together. And this is why I'm highlighting the word's role in sustaining us. Because if you're looking at the ESV, you'll see the word train three times in this text. Once in verse 6, in verse 7, and in verse 8. But in verse 6, it's actually a different word than the physical training Paul is describing in verses 7 and 8. Now, maybe you're looking at another translation like the King James, the New American Standard, or the NIV, and there you'll see the word nourished. And throughout Scripture, this word refers to the nourishment that is provided by food. So for us as believers, what this is saying is the most important food that we would ever consume and be nourished by is God's word. As the prophet Jeremiah said to the Lord in Jeremiah 15, your words were found and I ate them and they became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And we must ask ourselves, is this how I relate to God's word? Do I hunger for it and delight in it above everything else? Do I find my greatest nourishment here? Do I say along with the psalmist from our scripture reading, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. This is the type of longing for God's word that we should be praying for as a church. Far above being sustained physically, would we look to the Lord to be sustained spiritually by his word? And of course, no one has modeled this better for us than Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And Matthew tells us he was hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, I wouldn't just be hungry. I'd be hangry. I'd be looking everywhere for some food. Now, I shared this illustration with Katie last night, and she said, no, no, you get hungry after 30 minutes. If it was 40 days or 40 nights, you wouldn't have even survived. Which draws out even more the point that, praise the Lord, unlike us, Jesus was perfect in his self-control. Because the devil thought this was where he'd get Jesus. He comes up to him in the wilderness knowing how hungry he must be. And he tempts him. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Do you remember Jesus' response to Satan? He quotes God's word back to him. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where each and every one of us would have failed, Jesus was perfect in his trust of God's word to sustain him above everything else. And in his humanity, Jesus was guided toward godliness by the word of God alone. 
And if you remember back to 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul's confession of the mystery of godliness, we saw that as God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus is the perfect embodiment of godliness. And this is why every single aspect of the Christian faith is grounded in him. He is the foundation of these words of the faith and the good doctrine that Paul is now calling Timothy and us to follow in verse 6. And he's not talking about loosely following the Savior's word simply by claiming his name. He's talking about our lives being conformed to this word in every way. And if we become more and more conformed to his word, we will also be transformed by it. And this leads us to the second way that we are guided by the Savior's word. The Savior's word shapes us. The Savior's word shapes us. We see this in verses 7 and 8. Now, as Paul has made clear many times already in this letter, he knew that sound Christian teaching was not the only form of teaching that had the potential to shape the Ephesians' thinking. And so he wants Timothy to be increasingly aware of what he's up against. He warns him in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And Paul uses this word myth to mock these false teachings. That they're nothing but counterfeit legends and tales. Which stands in stark contrast to these trustworthy words of the faith and good doctrine that Timothy has to offer to the Ephesians. I like how another translation words this. Reject those myths fit only for the godless and the gullible. These teachings are ready to be received by the gullible, those who would believe anything that they hear. And they're godless. They contain nothing that resembles God or his truth. And this is why the very next thing Paul commands Timothy to do is to train himself for godliness. Because, beloved, if we truly reject what is godless, then this must mean that we embrace godliness. And here it becomes especially clear that gospel teaching and godliness go hand in hand. As we will see later in chapter 6, this is the teaching that accords with godliness. They go together. And what he means is that this kind of teaching produces a certain kind of character in God's people. It produces godliness, or we could say being like him. And this is what I mean when I say that as his word guides us to godliness, it shapes us. And given this image of training that Paul's using, we could understand this as our spiritual training. And Paul contrasts this spiritual training with physical training in verse 8. He says, for while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is a value in every way. Now, there is an important pitfall that we have to look out for here in this verse. One could argue from this verse that Paul is elevating spiritual training above the physical in such a way that taking care of our bodies doesn't matter at all. But if this was true, then Paul would be contradicting himself. Because elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, he argues that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. That we are called to glorify God in our bodies. 
And the New Testament as a whole teaches that humans are made up of both body and soul and that both are significant. So what Paul is doing here is he's making a comparison from the lesser to the greater. He's certainly not denying that physical training is valuable. But he is saying that spiritual training, that is growing in godliness, has a greater enduring value. Now, although spiritual training must be our highest priority, it's also right for us to wisely prioritize physical training. And in this, what's most important is that we are not being driven by the worship of our own bodies or of physical appearance. Rather, we should understand that any dieting or athletic training that we do is a stewardship of the bodies that God has given us. And when we see this as a stewardship, it helps us to align our priorities properly. And this makes way for us to help one another to first pursue godliness while also helping one another not to neglect to care for ourselves physically. So whether we do keto or paleo or cardio or CrossFit, we can do these things to the glory of God. If and when we do these things, we recognize that there are much greater things at stake beyond what is physical. And this is why it is godliness that Paul says is supremely valuable above everything else. At the end of verse 8, we see that godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This means that following the Savior's word makes a promise to us that nothing or no one else can make. While bodily training may physically shape us for the present, this pursuit of godliness spiritually shapes us for eternity. Because we must remember, beloved, the most important image that we are being conformed to is not a certain bodily image, but to the very image of the Son of God. And this is what our pursuit of godliness is all about. It's about looking more like Jesus. And there is no calling more glorious. There is no other calling that fixes our gaze on eternity and not just on the present. If you remember what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, on that day when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's coming a day when we will see the Lord face to face and we will be completely like him as those who have been completely conformed to his image. Hallelujah. But until that day, This passage teaches us in the words of one commentator that our diet is to be the scriptures and we are to exercise ourselves in them because we will only become godly through the most godly book ever written, God's own word. And this is why the saints of Redeemer Church must be shaped by the Savior's word alone. Because apart from his word, there is no other promising hope For us to grow in godliness. But his word doesn't just promise this hope to us. It also secures us in this hope. And this leads us to our final point this morning. The Savior's word secures us. 
the Savior's word secures us. Now, verse 9 begins with a familiar phrase. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, I say it's familiar because we've heard this exact phrase in 1 Timothy before. Pete remembers, right? In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul wrote, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So now here in chapter 4, he uses this phrase again. And there is some debate over whether this saying is looking back to what Paul just said about godliness in verse 8, or whether it is looking forward to what he's about to say in verse 10. Now, it seems most likely to refer to verse 10, and here's why. There is a shorter version of this phrase that Paul likes to use. The saying is trustworthy. And this is found three other times in Paul's letters. And in each case, Paul is setting up what he is about to say in the next verse. And this case seems to be strengthened even more when this exact phrase, not just that the saying is trustworthy, but that it's deserving of full acceptance, is only found one other time in the book of 1 Timothy, where Paul is devoting specific attention to God's salvation. And our passage now transitions to a similar focus on salvation. Now, why I go through all of this, you might be wondering. It's for us to understand that what we are about to hear about God's salvation in verse 10, this is what is completely worthy of our trust and our wholehearted acceptance. And so Paul now turns to explain what we might call the goal of godliness that he's just described in verse 8. And all that he's been saying up until this point, a godliness that's guided by the Savior's word, now finds its purpose. Because following the Savior's word is no aimless task. If Paul's argument is like an arrow, it's now speeding towards the bullseye. Look with me at verse 10. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. Now, when we see these words toil and strive, don't think of toiling in the flesh like a white knuckle. This all depends on me and how hard I try kind of toil. You know, the striving that Paul is describing is not a works-based striving. This is a striving toward godliness that is completely dependent upon the power of the Spirit. Listen to how Paul describes his gospel ministry in Colossians chapter 1. For this I toil, same word, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Or likewise in Philippians 2 when he says to the church in Philippi, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, we are being called to work out what God has worked in. And this is still in total agreement with the understanding that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But as Luther has famously remarked, we are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. And in this context of striving toward godliness, in one author's words, this requires an active, kinetic obedience 
that springs from a reverent awe of God. Redeemer, we must press on toward this godliness together. As we depend on his spirit, we will only persevere in godliness because it is God who has produced it in us in the first place. It is only because he holds us fast that we have hope. This is the very foundation of Paul's argument here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Why do we toil and strive in the spirit? Because we have our hope set on the living God. And this hope is not set on just any God. It's set on the living God. Through the inspiration of the spirit, the authors of scripture call God the living God 27 times in the Old and New Testament. He's living There never was a time where he was not living, and there never will be a time where he is not living. He's forever alive and active. And this sets him apart from any other so-called gods that Timothy would have faced in his day. Those who were never alive and never will be alive. They're dead and useless. Never to be trusted with their word because they can't even speak in the first place. And this is what is so drastically different about the living God. He is a God who reveals himself to his people, speaking to them through his word. And this is why our hope is set on him and his word. Because our Savior is always faithful to his word. Amen? In other words, ours is a hope that is secured. And it's not secured because of the strength of our hope. It is secured because of the steadfastness of our God. Listen to this beautiful description of hope from Hebrews chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And so, believer, I would ask you, are you striving to hold on to this hope? And if not, where are you setting your hope? Because the only real lasting hope that we could ever have is grounded in the reality that Christ has saved us. Any other hope will just fizzle away. Only the hope of the Savior will remain until the end. And it's this Savior that we now turn to. And you might be wondering why Paul refers to God the Father as Savior in verse 10. We have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people. And Paul only uses the word Savior three times in 1 Timothy. And surprisingly, each time, it refers to God the Father. Look back to Paul's greeting to Timothy in the very first verse of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior. Or in 1 Timothy 2, verse 3, where Paul says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, Gee, if I was Timothy, I'd be telling that guy Paul to be a little bit more theologically accurate. I'd be saying, Come on, Paul, don't you know that Jesus is our Savior? But there's no doubt that Paul knows Jesus is our Savior. Remember Paul's crystal clear declaration back in chapter 2. There is one mediator 
between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. What I hope that we would see here in 1 Timothy 4.10. Is that when Paul calls God the Father our Savior. Paul actually couldn't be more theologically accurate. Because what he's doing is showing the perfect unity between God the Father and God the Son in salvation. When the Father saves, the Son saves. They don't operate independently from each other. And this is perfectly in line with the rest of the New Testament. For example, the well-known benediction from the book of Jude that often closes our services here at Redeemer. Where Jude says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we could say it this way. We have been saved by God the Father, through God the Son, in God the Spirit. This means that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is the Savior through and through. And this is why it is our Savior and his word alone that secures us, beloved. And as our passage teaches us, he's not just any Savior, he's the Savior of all people. Now, back in chapter 2, we spent a good deal of time unpacking what it means for Christ to be the ransom for all. So I don't want to belabor the point here. But just to briefly note this phrase, all people, Paul's not saying that all people are saved or even that all people will be saved. What he is teaching is that if there is only one Savior, then he must be the Savior for all people. You following me? Just as the Apostle Peter declared before the Jewish leaders in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other Savior. This is why Paul speaks of him this way. And as the Savior of all people, Paul tells us that he is especially the Savior of those who believe. This means there's a particular people whom God saves. It's those who would believe in him. So there is no salvation without repenting from our sin and believing in Christ by faith. This is the path to the Savior. And if you're here this morning and you don't know this Savior, he can save you today. He can save you right now. And this enduring hope that is set on the living God will be yours if you would just turn from your sin and trust in him by faith. Only our God has made this salvation available for us. And earlier this morning, we were reminded of this truth as we sang these words together. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. This is the holy savior that we serve. And when we follow his word, we are moved to worship him with our lives. As one author has said, nothing evokes the worship of God like the word of God. And so this morning, if you are following the word of this savior, if you are trusting in him alone, Remember that the hope found in his word is only secure because it is secured by him. To call us back to last week's sermon from Revelation 22, we will only continue to keep his word because we are kept by him. 
It is his word alone that sustains us, shapes us, and secures us to live godly lives before him. Beloved, this is why only the Savior's word is worth following. And may it be our prayer that Redeemer Church would continue to set our hope on this Savior as we follow his word together. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for your word that is so clear, Lord, that your word that speaks to us, your word that is living and active, that cuts through to the heart. Lord, we ask for your strength to follow and obey you by following your word and help us to grow in godliness together, trusting in the Savior's word alone. Lord, we trust all these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.